0: to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are marking the grim milestone of one million COVID deaths in the United States. We're talking about the outcome of the elections in the Philippines. And it's Tuesday, so we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And later in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... You know, the Senate has just passed a bill to give police protection to families of Supreme Court justices, and it goes to the House for its vote. NPR reports that the Supreme Court... Police Parity Act would provide police protection to the immediate families of the nine justices and other officers of the court if the marshal determines such protection is necessary, the legislation says. The bill was introduced by Senator John Conran, a Texas Republican, and it will now go before the House for its vote. He says threats to the physical safety of the Supreme Court justices and their families are disgraceful and attempts to intimidate and influence the independence of our judiciary could not be tolerated. The bill follows a leak last week of a draft Supreme Court opinion that if... Unchanged would overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 case that federally legalized abortions. The legislation follows a protest and vigil against the potential SCOTUS ruling against Roe v. Wade that was organized at Justice Samuel Alito's house yesterday and the protest in front of Brett Kavanaugh's and Chief Justice John Roberts' homes that became the center of media attention last week. The protest at Kavanaugh's and Roberts' homes was organized by their neighbor, Lacey Wooten Hallway, who has been protesting in front of the SCOTUS members' houses in their upscale Chevy Chase neighborhood for months. But Wooten Holloway only received support from fellow neighbors and other reproductive rights activists after the Supreme Court's draft decision on Roe, seeming to indicate that the justices are going to overturn it, was leaked to the press last week. And then all of a sudden, Wooten Holloway was not alone in her protest of her neighbors. She was joined by scores of other folks, and all of a sudden the media decided that she was the menace, that the protests were The menace, but Wooten Holloway was not bothered, even as Washington politicos and talking heads wrung their hands again about what proper protesting should be. Wooten Holloway said, I organized peaceful candlelit vigils in front of his house, talking about Kavanaugh's. We're about to get doomsday, so I'm not going to be civil to that man at all. And of course, neighbors and some passersby aren't in agreement with the protests, believing that protesting in front of the personal residences of these people is a bridge too far. Many neighbors who were interviewed for the Washington Post story that highlighted Wooten Holloway's protests either didn't want to give their names for fear of affecting their jobs, or if they agreed that Roe should not be overturned and agreed with Wooten Holloway's protests, they didn't want to give support to crossing a line with the protests in front of these people's homes. To this, Wooten Holloway said, if the conservative justices are considering rolling back a precedent that protects what people choose to do with their own bodies, then no home address is out of bounds. And this is really the reality of the level of political involvement of most people in the United States. Even as politicians and these nine unelected lifetime appointees to a court establish laws that affects every citizen in this country, most people are either too afraid of losing their comfort to even speak out against unjust laws or get involved in any way to raise awareness about the unjust nature of these laws. Even among the majority of people in this country who believe that Roe versus Wade should not be overturned, and most people in this country do believe that a woman has a right to decide what to do with her own body, people have largely remained uninvolved in any kind of organizing around this issue. Certainly, the Democrats could have done far more to codify Roe back when they had a supermajority in the first two years of Obama's presidency, so them trying to push for a vote to do that now is just it's just laughable. But people don't even want to admit that the failure to protect a woman's bodily autonomy lies at the feet of Obama and the Democrats, let alone stand in front of the houses of the men who are about to decide that no woman in this country has a right to make her own reproductive choices. Lacey Wooten Holloway's lonely protest in front of Kavanaugh and Roberts' homes in defense of women's reproductive rights that they are about to take away is righteous. But this is how all protests for all righteous causes go in this country. There are only a few of us willing to put everything on line to stand up to save all of us. But in order to truly transform this system that values no lives, that are not capitalist oligarchs, that has willingly allowed now one million people to die from the spread of a virus that could have been mitigated had this government provided care for its citizens, it's going to take a lot more than a few Lacey Wooten hallways and a small isolated protest here and there to do that. In order for us all to have a better world, more of us are going to have to be willing to sacrifice some of the comforts that we have of the crumbling world we live in now to build a better world. Follow Luke Mann Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Luke sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
1: By Any Means Necessary. And we're going
0: to keep the movement moving on, as they say. And we are marking the grim milestone of 1 million deaths due to COVID 19 in the United States. And we're joined for this conversation by Dr. Margaret Flowers, co founder of Popular Resistance and director of the Health Over Profit for Everyone campaign. Margaret, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Jackie. You know, it's very interesting that on the day that we are having this conversation, I am at home having contracted uh, Mm COVID-19, not while I was in Cuba, but probably after having passed through uh, an airport in, in the United States where practically no one was wearing a mask. And I think the stark disparity between the way... Cuba responded to covid nineteen and continues to respond to the virus, where wearing a mask in public is not a violation of anyone's rights. it is uh very much an expression of solidarity with uh fellow neighbors, fellow citizens uh taking care of oneself and taking care of each other and then the stark contrast of the individualism and and i honestly I have to say the selfishness of Americans who felt that wearing a mask was just a bridge too far and a violation of their liberty. So on Wednesday, the U.S. announced uh, that it surpassed one million COVID-19 deaths. And this is according to data that was compiled by NBC News. And, you know, Margaret, when this pandemic began, I don't think I would have imagined that this government would have allowed such a thing to happen but i can't say that this this is just a failure of individual people and, and it's a failure of you know a, a lack of community or or a care and concern for other people in this country i think that's a part of it but the larger responsibility for this horrible milestone is on the United States government, with not providing anything that the people would have needed to avoid this horrible milestone. So now we are we're here with a, a million deaths and, and a formerly unthinkable scale of loss. And still, there seems not to be much concern about even the fact that a million people have died from this virus in this country, Margaret.
2: Yeah, well, there's, there's so much there to to unpack, and I have to agree with you. Having traveled in the past two years to Venezuela and Nicaragua, countries that do take care of their people and do have health systems and did put you know policies in place to protect their population, I felt so much safer there than I did you know, or and still do being here in the United States. And I agree with you completely. This is a failure of the federal government, and it's a failure you know, of the Democrats who say one thing and do another. I mean, imagine if in 2010, when President Obama was talking about health care and doing health reform, that we'd actually put in place a national universal health care system. We would have had a system in place to deal with the pandemic. And this is something that we have been warning about, you know, in our struggle for that, is that, you know, we've we we have a, a system that's based on profits, not on public health, and so it wasn't able to uh, to respond when the pandemic hit, and people faced you know financial barriers to getting care. Uh, states and even you know individual hospitals were fighting with each other to try to get. Supplies and so prices were going way up uh, because the companies could profiteer off of this. And then, you know, there was just a lack of information. For people about, you know, it was just very confusing. You know, people were told mask, don't mask, it's safe, it's not safe. I mean, there was just no real information as this pandemic was developing and we were learning, you know, new information about how the virus spread and how infectious it was. People just were not given that information. In fact, they were misinformed. I think there was a lot of politicization of the virus. And it was used, you know, to the detriment of people's health, people being told, you know, that that being told to wear a mask is a violation of your rights. This is ridiculous. But, it, you know, that put people's lives at risk and people have died because they believed that. And and so, yeah, I think that um, we continue to be in a serious pandemic. In fact, I've been following the website Worldometer.info since the beginning of this because I just felt like they were a more reliable source. And they marked uh, a million deaths a while ago. In fact, they're at uh, one million and more than twenty-five thousand deaths. And we know that that's an undercount. You know that and that you know people are dying at COVID of COVID who haven't been counted. And then there's the whole bigger impact of. People who died because the healthcare system was overwhelmed and they weren't able to get the care they needed. They were afraid of going to the healthcare system because they were afraid of contracting COVID. There's just so many ramifications, you know, disastrous ramifications of this pandemic.
0: Yeah, th- that overcount. I think there has always been an interesting conversation on the left, Margaret, about. Uh, the statistics and and what's being reported and how it's being reported, what isn't being reported, and, and that kind of thing. And I think this has led to a lot of the confusion and a lot of the misinformation about uh the virus and and certainly the vaccines and and that kind of thing. So I mean why would there be an undercount of uh the uh fatalities uh, due to COVID-19, that that we should that we should understand why the official from the U.S. government uh, uh, statistics from the CDC are different from what's being counted on the website you just mentioned. Why why would there be a disparity?
2: Well, I think for one thing, we don't have the public health infrastructure to be able to track exactly what's going on. So I think that there are people who died that weren't tested. I mean, if you think about it, the very beginning, when the epicenter was Queens in New York City, uh, they were seeing a tremendous increase in people just having heart attacks and strokes at home and, you know, having to go around and just even pick up dead bodies, people who were never tested. Um, And, you know, how many of those people? had, you know, COVID-19. I mean, my own partner, Kevin, who died, it was just six months after he had had a very mild case of COVID-19. And then he had a a stroke, he'd been, you know, seemingly very healthy, there were no signs. And then boom, he has a a stroke. And I have to wonder, you know, if that was related to having COVID-19. So deaths like that, you know, are not being reported. Um, But I think the big thing is that we just didn't have, we don't have the the amount of people we need to be looking into and examining really every case of the excess death that we're seeing in their country, in this country, and even the testing infrastructure for people to get tested to, you know, to figure out if that was a contributing factor to their death.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I continue to have so many questions about the the response of the healthcare system margaret i mean when we at the height of the pandemic the beginning of the pandemic because i i feel kind of weird saying at the height of pandemic uh, height of the pandemic as if it's over it's truly not but i do right. wonder how hospitals have responded to those early days of, as you said earlier, fighting over resources, fighting to get resources, making clandestine deals to to get ventilators, to get uh, N95 masks and, and surgical gowns and just basic protective equipment for hospital staff. How, what has the impact of that been on hospitals and really have hospitals in this in this country recovered from that honestly it, it seemed like a scene out of a out of a post-apocalyptic uh horror movie to me watching hospitals and hospital staff um, have to fight for protective equipment to do their jobs
2: right and being forced into doing their job without appropriate protection you know they basically had to put like their protective equipment into a paper bag and wear it the next day you know at at the end of their shift and, and wear it again instead of taking it off and getting fresh protective equipment like they should have i think you know the pandemic has exposed so many of the faults and failures of the system in the united states not just the healthcare system but the economic system the employment system the housing everything um but i think that you know for the hospitals we're seeing a number you know more and more health professionals pushing back and going on strike and i think as you know as a result of them being realizing that during this pandemic, their life and safety and health has not been prioritized by this system, which is crazy. I mean, what do we do without health professionals? And and we're losing people. You know, they're retiring, they're leaving the profession because of it. So we're seeing more kind of strikes by health professionals across the country. Um, we're going to be seeing you know shortages of particularly nurses in this country, and I don't think that it's had. The response that it should have had. Like, if you were running this country and you, the entire healthcare system failed and is failing, wouldn't you think that you would do something about that? You know, we we need to be, uh, getting more people, hiring more people, paying them, but providing them with the protective protocols uh, that protects people. And we're just really not seeing that to the extent. That we need to be seeing that, and it's a result of having a for-profit healthcare system where literally money is more important than lives in this country.
0: Mm, absolutely. And, you know, on the local level, there is also the issue of how states uh, are handling uh, the pandemic uh and and even handling the reporting, which I think goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, Margaret, about why there are disparities uh in, in reporting. DC has actually not reported daily COVID case counts to the C D C since April twenty seventh. The DC Health Department hasn't shared data. Uh, with the CDC, because they they claim that it's tr- it's time to treat coronavirus less like an emergency and more like an endemic illness. But it it it, it continued to provide case counts to the CDC uh, on a on a sporadic basis. But then on April 27th, they they just stopped. Um, I, I mean, I feel like this is incredibly dangerous. Uh, but I, I feel like it's also a, a, a gross failure of leadership on the local level, and we're talking about a Democrat here uh, who is the yeah. mayor of Washington, D.C., who wants to treat this uh, virus this less like an emergency and more like an endemic illness. That just sounds very wrong to me.
2: Right. Well, that's an admission of failure of the system, right? I mean, they realized, hey, we actually can't control this. So we'll just convince everybody that we don't need to control it. You know, the, And then we saw that earlier this year, the whole thing of like, oh, we're just, you know, it's another cold virus, it's another respiratory thing. It's its something we just have to live with. You know, that's what everybody was told, which is incredibly dangerous because the virus, not only is it not gone, but it continues to evolve. I mean, the The Omicron, which is now considered to be a hyperinfectious virus, something I had never heard of before, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has been evolving into these various sub variants of it. And now we have a B4 and a B5 that have taken off in South Africa and have they've tripled their number of cases in the past month. And that's what we can be expecting to see here in the United States. We're learning, you know, just like it seems like every day we're learning new things, the number of people that are uh, being affected by long COVID. It's up to a third of people who have the you know have the illness and many of them were asymptomatic they had either very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all and then they're now they're incapacitated and this is including you know young people now we're seeing liver disease we see the impacts on the uh, cognitive function and we don't really know about the long-term impacts on on children who are in increasing proportion of the people who are infected especially young children because they're not protected they're not vaccinated so this is still a new and evolving situation and it's really just the system failed and so they're trying to convince everybody to you know look the other way don't pay attention to to what we did here and that's it's dangerous and it's fairly I think unique (laughs) to the United States I would say the majority of
0: countries in the world are taking this seriously that's very interesting that you said that you had never heard of, of hyperinfectious infectious before. And, and I think that is interesting, Margaret, that the medical experts, the scientific community at least, admit that there is an aspect of this virus that is something they've never seen before, but are, are basically admitting that they can't control it but they're also not doing anything about it and they're not compelling politicians to do anything about it which i think is the is the disconnect between the medical community and the politicians that i find interesting and and i'm wondering if you can speak to that why is the 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 medical community who is seeing this swiftly uh changing this this fast spreading Ever present virus operating in ways that that most say they've never seen before. Why is there not a, a um a compulsion among many in the medical community to uh appeal to the politicians to do something? Why are we not seeing that?
2: Gosh, I think that's a, a complicated question. And I think, you know, it, it comes down to the part of the fact of, you know, not having a healthcare system in the United States. I think there's, it was a number of years ago, I remember talking to a doctor who said, I think that most health professionals in this country are in grief. They're in in one of the states, they're angry or they're in denial or, you know, whatever the various, or acceptance, this is just the way it is. And, And so you know we don't have this cohesion we don't have unions of physicians in large part i mean there is a union of residents but uh, i don't think that they're, they're large or very active on this we have professional organizations that are profit about you know making sure that that physicians are able to practice in a better way or have the tools they need or you know are active in in public health we just have a real lack of that kind of of organization focused on actual health in this country. I mean, it's part of the reason I left the American Academy of Pediatrics because I was really disgusted by the fact that it was more about selling things to fact practices than actually being a, you know, a service to to help practices operate better. And, you know, in other countries you do see, they have healthcare systems, they have ways that can uh, can interact and, and, you know, push for things. They have, you know, tools for physicians to do that. Here, your health professionals are literally told you're a cog in the machine and don't make waves or you'll lose your job. You know, it's just, it's a very different environment, but I think this has, you know, this has really changed things. And just like we're finally starting to see the climate crisis have such an impact that scientists, are coming out into the streets and are starting to push back more. Uh, The, you know, environmental protection agency employees are starting to push more. And I hope that we'll see the health professionals in this country get that same kind of courage and sense of urgency and realization that things are not going to change unless you take action and
0: do something about it absolutely true. And just in the last uh, couple of minutes we have, Margaret, where do we go from here? We have vaccines, but that was all the government uh, really provided the people. Where do we go from here with this uh, with this virus and with protecting ourselves from the virus? And how do we respond in this capitalist system where, you know, clearly our lives uh, do not matter unless we are uh, uh, politicians or the oligarchs that basically buy and control them.
2: Right. Well, I think first off, um, people should recognize that just because the corporate media is not paying attention to this doesn't mean that it has gone away. In fact, we're in an upswing right now of more than 65,000 newly documented cases a day. And you're right. The states aren't even reporting the way that they used to. And the funding for testing has gone out the window. So uh, that's probably an undercount. Um, And just looking at what's happening in South Africa, we could be seeing a pretty significant rise. These new variants are also even more infectious than infectious than the original strains of Omicron. So uh, this is spread through the air, and so people need to continue to mask up and to stay out of situations where you're around, you know, a lot of people. You need to keep taking those same precautions, even if your local or state or federal government is not telling you to do that. And we need to continue to demand that the government responds i mean we've been saying from the beginning like we we could have stopped this we could have at least attenuated it significantly we could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives if people had housing if they had economic security so that they could isolate when they need to, if they had access to health care without any financial barriers, we still need to be fighting for these things. If they had adequate protection at work, you know, we know what to do, but we are going to have to press our government to do that and recognize that none of this is being done because as I said, money is more important than people's lives and that's the capitalist system in which we live. And so we need to, understand the connections between this pandemic and the systemic problems that we face and and work for systemic change in this country.
0: Absolutely. Capitalism is definitely the major pandemic here, and we must defeat that. But we want to thank you so much, Margaret Flowers, for joining us. We'll be back with By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. Stay
1: tuned. By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're getting an update on elections in the Philippines, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Joe Osbacher, co-chair of the Labor Committee of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, and Adrian Bonifacio, National Chairperson of Bayan Joe, Adrian, thanks so much for joining me.
3: Great to be here.
0: Absolutely. And there has been uh, a pretty momentous result in the Philippine election. So, uh, Adrian, I wonder if you can bring us up to date on the election results and, uh, you know, how this played out between uh, the the major parties.
4: Right. So Philippine national elections was held yesterday, May 9th, in the Philippines. And the results of which the um, partial results showing right now are that Bongbong Bong Marcos, the son of late dictator Ferdinand Marcos, uh, won in a landslide 31 million votes compared to the next uh, candidate, Lenny Robredo, who represented the opposition at 14 million, almost 15 million votes. In the vice presidential election, which is uh, held, uh, they're elected separately, the president and vice president, Sara Duterte, who is the daughter of current president Rodrigo Duterte, also won by a landslide, 31 million compared to Lenny's running mate Kiko Pangilinan, who only got nine million. What's important to know about this is that the election day itself was marred with um, widespread disinformation, corruption, suppression, vote buying, uh, illegal campaigning, red tagging, and violence. And so we really see the rotten political system at play here with this election, and we we can see that there was widespread electoral fraud.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I I think for people in the U.S. or outside of the Philippines may be confused about the political landscape in uh, the Philippines, particularly since this uh, Bon Bon Marcos is the son of the late dictator. Ferdinand Marcos. So it's not as if he has a—he's carrying on a legacy of progressivism uh, in the in the Philippines, at least not from his father's legacy. But Duterte um, is clearly was clearly a monster, uh, best known for crude insults against women and his so-called war on drugs that was really uh, a campaign of brutality and violence that has left thousands of people dead. So Joe, you were in the Philippines a few uh, weeks ago and you were the victim of red tagging. So can you help people understand where these candidates lie on the political spectrum and what their platforms mean for uh, the people of the Philippines?
3: So, I uh, I think the 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 two campaigns, um, you know, basically represent uh, you know a maintenance of the status quo <clears throat> versus a turn away from. The you know the the terrible history of corruption and uh, and the history of you know the economy being dominated by these well what the what the movement in the Philippines calls bureaucratic capitalists and and, I, and I'm just going to share you know one you know small detail about how you know uh, corrupt politicians not only how they stay in power <clears throat> but but what their what their impact is economically uh one of the last days i was only in the philippines for a week the first week in in april but one of one of the people i had a chance to meet with is a current uh, elected official um in the manila you know, metro manila um he asked not to identify his um his seat or his name in order to in order to quote him but he told us that uh, that his opponent, who was a supporter of Marcos and Duterte, um, was handing out uh, between five and seven million pesos a day uh, in vote buying. It, it, and that, by the way, that uh, translates to between 100 and 150,000 dollars a day in vote buying in a, you know in an urban in a neighborhood or an area of the city that's our area of the manila area that's largely very poor um, and so you know i'm from chicago i was i was here in the harold washington in the era when harold washington took the the city away from the old patronage machine i'm I, you know i'm it's it's not a shock to me to see vote buying but the level of corruption In the electoral system, was pretty shocking, you know, and that happened, you know, everywhere across uh, across the economy. So, um, so you know, when you combine that cash nexus with this, you know, massive PR system where you know all of the all of the media. In, or almost all of the media in the Philippines got behind this illusion of returning to the, you know, to the happy days when, uh, when the when the Marcoses were in power, um, and when there was, you know, when there was more jobs, uh, where there was less social crisis. Uh, it, you know, it, you know, it, it had, you know, it had some, it certainly had had a lot of impact on on the voters but this spread of votes is just not believable
0: yeah especially since there are uh, concerns <clears throat> excuse me of marcos's uh, record of corruption in his previous uh, positions as the governor of ilocos uh, norte uh, in the 1980s where he replaced his aunt um and i'm wondering uh, adrian if you can give us uh you know and and an insight into how marcos has uh, handled his previous governing experience and what his platform is because there, there seems to be some confusion aside from uh, p- perhaps continuing the, the drug war uh, that Duterte started, um, there seems to be some confusion about what he will actually do, how he will actually govern uh, the Philippines. So, so what, what what do people know about uh, uh, Marcos's platform?
4: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Uh, I think Marcos himself hasn't been very clear, um, probably because he doesn't really have a substantial platform uh, to share. Uh, you're, you're absolutely correct that Marcos has a very bad track record, no? And and to point to what you were saying earlier, it, it wasn't just corruption during this last few months of campaigning or during this last election day, if not a systematic attempt to restore power and rehabilitate the Marcos family. You know, Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos, Bongbong Marcos's father, declared martial law uh, 50 years ago. Uh, He was ousted uh, 36 years ago. Um, And so it's been three plus decades of uh, historical revisionism, of attacking public education, of banning books, of a massive disinformation campaign, uh, so on and so forth, to try to rehabilitate the Marcos name. And Duterte was actually key in that. Uh, Duterte's presidency uh, helped to restore the Marcos family back um, to power and so if we think about um, that in terms of his track record as governor, his track record as um, a politician, we can see that it's um, not in service of the people, It's not in service to rehabilitate their own power back. And so his platform on the campaign trail, he actually didn't attend any presidential debates. I think he knew that it would uh, cause more speculation on the side of the people because he didn't have anything to share. Um, He kept on ranting about unity during the election, when we know that the unity that Bongbong Marcos represents is the unity of the ruling elite in the Philippines, the landed elite, uh, those who have profited from uh, decades of government corruption, of stealing uh, money from the people, again, of attacking um, education, of revising history, of continuing subservience to to foreign interests, especially the the United States, um, and of protecting their landed interests, too, uh, against the majority of people who still continue to farm uh, and uh, uh, workers who are denied uh, a livelihood. And so um, if we're to expect that uh, his platform will continue uh, from what he's been doing before, that's what the Filipino people can expect. And, you know, one of his campaign promises that i just like to point out is that he promised to continue his father's um, what we call the labor export program, which was a neoliberal policy that began around the 70s and 80s to address the economic crisis, the debt crisis that Marcos himself uh, plunged the country into. Instead of creating jobs and industry in the Philippines, he exported people, the Filipino people abroad, and created an economy that relies on remittances. And that's why they're so... Uh, such a huge Filipino diaspora across the world, because the government systematically exports its own people to to keep the economy afloat, and that's the kind of policy that Marcos Jr. wants to continue.
0: And Joe, there was an opposition, a a a, a progressive left opposition uh, candidate who came in with fourteen point seven million votes, less less than half of Marcos's total, but. This was actually sort of a rematch between uh, Robredo who was a lawyer uh, a lawyer and a social activist, uh, and Marcos who faced off in a 2016 vice presidential race which Robredo won at the time despite Marcos trying to overturn the result. So what is next for uh, Robredo and you know the general opposition uh, in the Philippines after this election?
3: So yeah uh the the uh, Lenny Tico campaign was r- really an expression of of you know not only her opposition to uh you know a return to the Marcos era and her opposition to the I mean she was elected she was vice president under Duterte but I think after about their first 6 months in office together I don't I don't think Duterte and her had much of a working relationship because you know he he went the way of, of establishing this reign of terror. Um, and that's not what she was about. So she tapped into this enormous social movement. And it was, you could see this on display uh, in in these just un- incredible mass mobilizations that took place over the last month. Um, that uh, I didn't actually get to attend any of those mass rallies, but I was in uh I was in Tarlac province and then like the day after I left uh there was a rally there of 200,000 people and this this weekend there was a rally in Manila of over a million uh and and I you know I think what what she has said so far uh you know after the you know election results were posted is that you know she she's continuing her call for a form of resistance. She calls it radical love, that that you know is in opposition to the the cruelty and the and the oppression that that Adrian was talking about. That characterizes you know the political economy in the Philippines. And uh, and and I and I just want to say again though, um, this election commission that that reported in record speed these results. I I just I can't believe them. Uh, just a few days before the election, the election commission head said it was going to take <clears throat> 7 days for them to do their work. And then the polls were, you know, the polling places were were just closing uh, across the country uh, in and when they announced this, you know, th- this spread of votes. So I I think in uh you know in you know, over you know, in the t- in the period to come, we're going to see uh, we're going to see a lot of questions raised about you know uh, about the accuracy of that vote count. Um, but uh, but overall, uh, the, I think the main and I've already seen on social media that that the uh, the student movement uh, and university uh, organizations, academic organizations, have been calling for protests. I I think there's going to be a lot of protest.
0: Definitely sounds like this election may not be settled, at least in the streets. And that's always what we like to see. But we're out of time for this uh, segment. want to thank Joe Osbacker and Adrian Bonifacio so much for joining us. Uh, we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us.
1: By Any Means Necessary.
0: To by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org, co-host of The Reboot Podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Oh, great to be here with you again, Jackie. Thank you.
0: And I'm really glad that we are able to talk about this story today because this is really shocking. And in the uh in in the potential uh overturning of Roe versus Wade that we're looking at uh now since the Scotus uh draft ruling has been leaked first time I've actually ever seen that happen in my life there are some serious questions about how data is used to track people who visit abortion clinics so What is going on uh, with a location uh, data firm using uh, location data to track people's visits to reproductive rights clinics?
5: Yeah, this is unfortunately all too common at this point uh, where, you know, the apps that we use on our cell phones often include code, uh, not even by the developers themselves, to track where we are and send that information to data companies so that it can be reused and repackaged and sold to advertisers. Um, In this case, the company is called SafeGraph. Now, SafeGraph isn't making an app that you're using on your phone, but what they're doing is they're providing something called an SDK, a software development kit. Uh, Sometimes, you know, these SDKs are very useful. They help uh, developers track, you know, crashes and usage and things that are, you know, helpful for building their apps. But in some cases, like with SafeGraph, they just pay you. As a developer, to include the this code in your app, and it doesn't provide any benefit for anyone but Safegraph, and a little bit of financial, a payment to the developer because it sends your location data. When you're using the app, so Safegraph has said since this story came out in Motherboard from Joseph Cox last week that they're going to stop uh, stop collecting and selling this specific type of information, um, you know about people who are going to Planned Parenthood and other reproductive uh, clinics. But the, the idea is that there are apps that are collecting this. There are things that are collecting this, uh, services that are collecting this in general. So it's not just about The fact that you're, uh, you know, it's tracking that you're going to Planned Parenthood because it thinks that Planned Parenthood is a brand. And so it wants to track what brands are popular. So then you could potentially be targeted based on the brand that you like for advertisements. So imagine that. Imagine being targeted for advertisements based on where you went for healthcare, And that's such a a, a scary thing for us to all even think about. Um, The other thing is this. Information is available for anyone to purchase Uh, at Motherboard. They report that they purchased a week's worth of data um, on people who, you know, where people who visited Planned Parenthood, where they came from, where they went afterwards. It was one hundred and sixty dollars for that data. That's not much at all. We've seen situations in the past where um, people have bought uh, a, a Christian, a Catholic newsletter, The Pillar bought in- location information from Grindr, of course, the uh, gay dating app, and outed a priest uh, who was forced to resign because he had been going uh, from his home to uh, to some well-known gay clubs, to other people's homes. Um, and they were able to identify him, not because the information had his name in it. And I think that's something we need to be clear about. The information here doesn't have your name in it. But once you have enough location information, you can start tracking the patterns in phones, especially for a place that doesn't get a lot of traffic. You can see, you know, okay, this Android phone came here and then went back to their home and then came back again tomorrow. And you can kind of get a sense, right, a pattern of where people are, you know, which phones and which signals are tied to individual people. Because you can say, well, this person goes to this address every night. That must be their home. And then they go to this address, other address every day. That's maybe their school or their work. And from there, start looking through and figuring out uh, through all of the information that's available online, who that person might be. And then look at the location information and start tagging and tracking places they've gone, like Planned Parenthood, like gay clubs, like anywhere they've been. So real outrage here certainly is that Planned Parenthood was considered a brand to be tracked, but also that this is happening for, every, for stores that you go to, for restaurants, uh, for anywhere you go, basically.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the terrifying thing about this, Chris, is that considering the practically near total abortion bans uh, that have been passed in states like Texas, where citizenry has been deputized to uh, track down people who have uh, provided assistance to people who have sought uh, reproductive rights services, I mean, ostensibly, if somebody has $160 and they know how to uh, get this information, they could use this information to criminalize people who get any services from a Planned Parenthood office, even though pl- all Planned Parenthood offices uh, do not provide abortion services. As a matter of fact, most of them don't.
5: That's right, and Abortion is one of the is is not the most popular service at Planned Parenthood. Uh, popular is the wrong word. But let's say most used. Uh, Planned Parenthood and other other clinics provide mammograms. They provide STD testing and so many other services that are so important. Imagine being tracked to maybe a pharmacy in some of these states where they're you know banning or uh, attempting to ban things like Plan B or they want to ban. And uh, even forms of birth control, IUDs and being tracked to a doctor or to a pharmacy after a visit and somebody demanding an investigation in you just because of where you've gone. That's part of how this could really impact people when it comes to uh, the, the intersection of location data technology tracking and these attacks on reproductive rights.
0: Yeah, and location data is also the subject of uh, an issue, another story that was uh, reported by Motherboard in which the CDC tracked millions of phones to see if Americans followed COVID lockdown orders. Now, it seems weird to me, Chris, that the government that wouldn't provide PPE, wouldn't provide hand sanitizer, wouldn't, you know, provide any type of support for people to be uh, uh, safe during a, a real effective lockdown to break uh, the spread, uh, the, tra- the chain of transmission of this virus in the early days of the pandemic somehow was uh, you know completely okay with using location data to track people to see if they followed COVID lockdowns that were not very substantive at all. But I mean, it, it, this seems to me, Chris, that this kind of data is intended, as they the CDC claims, to be used for uh, uh, tracking, particularly uh, seeing if the uh, policy in the Navajo Nation was effective. But I get the feeling that the CDC would probably be using this data for a lot more than that.
5: That's right. And this also comes from, majority of it comes from SafeGraph. They have said that this also... Uh, They were buying this information from that same company we were just talking about that was was selling the information about uh, people going to Planned Parenthood. I wanted, when I first saw this story, to give it the benefit of the doubt and think public health officials are trying to do – you know, what they can, even if, you know, they can't enforce policy about lockdowns and, you know, payments and PPE, you know, they're trying to do the best they can. But this goes back to, you know, the question of what technology, you know, what what our outlook on technology should be. Um, in theory, right, we could say that this kind of, you know, the uh, tracking done properly with This kind of data, truly anonymized, could actually help scientists and public health professionals identify patient zero, identify where outbreaks have occurred and potentially where they're going to occur based on travel patterns. But under the current system, we cannot trust even the CDC with this kind of information. First of all, doing it at, on the Navajo na- Nation. I mean, this is, you know, indigenous people in the, in the United States have been subject to medical uh, malpractice and just torture, all, you know, all, you, you can say, for as long as white people have been on this continent. Um, so just doing it to the, the the Navajo Nation, this kind of location tracking, uh, really builds on top of that history of colonialism. Uh, and it's not the first time we've seen this kind of surveillance in the Navajo Nation, by the way. There are many other forms of U.S. government surveillance going on there. Um, you know it's it's again under a system where we have a a transparent and just rule which is certainly not the capitalist system we live under now this could be this kind of technology could be discussed and debated amongst the people who are going to be affected by it and we could say yes or no there are already ways that the cdc uses certain information to track covid and other diseases for example wastewater analysis which you know isn't tracking what's coming out of your home specifically but you know in aggregate um and you know but that takes time that takes a lot of a lot of uh, additional work so i i think again this this story really made me think about what it is that we should be thinking about when we look at technology and the uses of it it's not it's not how can we do this? It's should we do this? Who is in power? Who has the control over these things? And again, I'm sure that there are many scientists and public health officials at the CDC who were very well-intentioned, um, not necessarily the policymakers who are also talking about other ways to use this information, um, you know, which is also, you know, a really significant thing to look at in this story. But, you know, people, the scientists, you know, and public health folks, you know, trying to say we need to get on top of this. We're not getting support from the federal government uh, under Biden or Trump, frankly. And, you know, we need to be able to have some way of, of tracking this.
0: Yeah. And switching gears uh, uh, a little bit, uh, with the last few minutes, there's this interesting story about how John Deere, uh, the tractor company, thwarted a bunch of Russian uh, looters who uh, made off with 27 pieces of John Deere farm equipment from uh, a dealership in Melitopol, uh, Ukraine, valued at about $5 million. But John Deere was able to through technology that exists in their farm equipment in the tractors to disable the tractors from being used. And while the media is reporting that this is a, you know, a victory over Russian looters, this really speaks to why John Deere has this equipment in their tractors uh, or this technology in their tractors in the first place. And who that technology was really aimed at thwarting, and it's American farmers. What is this about, Chris?
5: Yeah, exactly. I really like the way that blogger Cory Doctorow uh, approaches this story. He says this is not a feel-good story. I think people have been celebrating it because, you know, the— Reportedly, the Russian military or or someone associated with them stole these tractors. They sent them to Chechnya. Um, But John Deere was able to turn them off remotely. John Deere has been one of the most notorious uh, companies of of manufacturers of farm equipment who is just so hostile to farmers in the U.S. and across the world. I mean, the fact that they can turn off a tractor that somebody else has purchased remotely, they're also known, well-known for – Not letting farmers repair their own equipment, uh, not providing instruction manuals, not selling parts, uh, none of that, and forcing you to bring it into a dealership. Imagine not being able to service, you know, to do your own oil change on your car, uh, but at a much, much larger scale. Imagine you had to bring it into the dealership every time. You know, it needed windshield wiper fluid or something broke. Um, that's basically what John Deere has been going for in this, uh, you know, in this story. And I think we can think about, you know, other situations with companies doing this, you know, to farmers. I mean, Monsanto, of course, with their patents on seeds, which is just absolutely outrageous. Um, but John Deere is also trying to lock down the data that you can get from your tractors. They can, you know, collect all of this information uh, about, you know, soil quality and things like that, Uh, but then they don't want you to have access to it if you're not paying them on a regular basis. It's like, you know, having to pay Netflix for the information for a TV show that you make, right, Um, for farmers, I mean, basically is what it is. So John Deere is one of these Companies that is really just out to get the American farmer and take advantage of them in some of the worst ways. And especially talking about this when we're about to hit a a potential global food crisis, uh, we should be looking at John Deere and the other companies who do this and saying, who gives you the right to affect the world and farmers like this?
0: absolutely. In a capitalist system, technology is not our friend. I want to thank you so much once again, Chris, for coming on and talking about these issues with us, but we're going to leave it there. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik, so please stay with us.
1: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. We are back. Yes, we are back, folks. It is Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. And as always, you can check us out at 320 p.m. Eastern Time by giving us a call at 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. But that's not the only way that our allies, accomplices, and comrades can reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can listen to our shows at Sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also check us out on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m., Eastern Time every day, every weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. And remember, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour today, I want to announce some good news that former Black Panther Sundiata Akoli will be released from prison after 49 years. Sundiata is 85, the oldest member of the Black Panther Party, still incarcerated for alleged acts of violence during the 70s Black Liberation Struggle uh, he had been held captive for more than 49 years for the May 1973 shooting of New Jersey State Trooper Werner Forster, found guilty the following year, sentenced to life plus 24 to 35 years. But the Supreme Court, the State Supreme Court of New Jersey, noted in its ruling that under the terms of his sentence, Akoli first became eligible for parole 29 years ago. And on every occasion that he came before the panel, his release was denied. So the parole board had lost sight that its mission largely was to determine the man, Akoli had become the Supreme Court, judges concluded. So they have ruled that he should be released. Welcome home, Sundiata Okoli. What's the call? Free them all. A great day, for political prisoners, and for the Sundiata indeed, and more, more political prisoners to free. But we are happy to be joined today by the people's historian, Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, and author of dozens of books, All of them fantastic, including his upcoming piece, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and The Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Fantastic to have you on, Dr. Horn, particularly as we are watching... I don't know. I don't know if if I want to say it's the ineffectiveness of the Supreme Court or the effectiveness of the the way that the Supreme Court upholds the rule of uh, white male patriarchy in this country or uh, the capitalist oligarchy in this country and doesn't represent the will and the needs uh, or, or the 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 uh, views of the people; these nine unelected lifetime appointees to the highest court in the land. Uh, you know, I I think Dr. Horn that we're seeing kind of both sides. That the Supreme Court is, as far as what the people want, completely ineffective. But in, in regard to upholding the hegemony of Uh, whatever horrible principles this country was founded on, it's really quite effective in doing that because that's precisely what they're about to do. I think with overturning Roe versus Wade, but a part of this discussion that I think we've entered into, but I'm interested to hear your take on is where the democratic party stands in what appears to be uh, the uh, impending overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme court. Now, I've never seen a Supreme Court decision leaked before in my lifetime. I think this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this happen. So that's one interesting aspect of this. But the other part of this is the fact that the Democratic Party has, for for years, decades, been basically negligent in codifying Roe versus Wade. They're scrambling to uh, uh, throw up a vote. To Cotevaro versus Wade. Now they don't have the votes for it with the two Republican lights in their party, but they're making such a big deal about it. And they're actually like campaigning on it to, to raise money. They sent out these mass texts when this uh, leak was uh, of this draft uh, uh, decision from the Supreme Court was was publicized. Uh, You know, rush $15 to the DNC on Wednesday, um, asking people to donate money to the Democratic Party. But I got to ask, donate money to the Democrats to do what, Dr. Horn? Because I seem to remember Barack Obama having a supermajority in Congress back in uh, 2008 when he could very well have codified Roe versus Wade into law and a bunch of other things, but just didn't do it. And and now we're looking at the Democrats also exposing their ineffectualness as far as what the people want, but being really good at raising money on these issues that affect people's lives. So I'm wondering how you're assessing the situation with this leaked SCOTUS ruling and the Democrats kind of scrambling to do a bunch of nothing but, you know, raise millions of dollars for what I think promises to be a failed midterm campaign.
6: First of all, kudos to Brother Akoli and after being released after four decades plus behind bars. And Kudos especially, I should say, to his attorney, Sophia Jill Elijah, who I happen to have worked with and collaborated with, particularly when I was doing more active legal work and have interviewed her on Pacifica Station in Los Angeles. Uh, With regard to this leaked opinion it's interesting that Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that presumably will be overturned next month, that that 1973 decision also was leaked, although it's unusual, as you've suggested, for opinions to be leaked. I think that we should realize that the focus should be on at least the fact that this is not the end, that There is a possibility that contraceptives will be banned. There is discussion in Louisiana as we speak about charging women who have this procedure to be prosecuted for murder, not to mention the medics that assist her, perhaps those at the clinics charged with aiding and abetting, if not conspiracy— There is an attempt in certain southern states to ban these pills, which are quite prevalent in Europe, and I believe Canada as well, to criminalize the mailing of those pills to women. There is an attempt in certain southern states to criminalize women who travel out of state to get this procedure. For example, you know that in New York State, Attorney General Letitia James is trying to set up a fund to assist women in places like Texas to travel to New York for the procedure, and likewise in uh, California, likewise, as I understand it, in Chicago, the city of Chicago. So I think that one conclusion that we should reach is obviously to have no illusions about the courts, an illusion that took flight in the 1950s after the United States under enormous global pressure because of its atrocious Jim Crow system uh, had to move expeditiously to erode the more horrible aspects of Jim Crow. And so there was this two-step whereby you would decapitate the left, led by Paul Robeson, and then eased the more horrific aspects of Jim Crow so as to conciliate any constituency that might be upset by the decapitation of the left. And as it turned out, the Supreme Court was the body, the ruling elite body that was most advantageously positioned because of its uh, nine-member Population to move rapidly. Certainly, you could move rapidly in Congress because of the hegemony of the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats, who, of course, then defected en masse to the Republican Party after you had the erosion of Jim Crow per the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And obviously, uh, President Eisenhower, a Republican was hardly in a position to jeopardize this political base by moving against Jim Crow. And so that left the Supreme Court as a default option. Uh, on this occasion, with the release of Brother O'Coley, I think we also need to have a very sober analysis of the battlefield that we face in the United States of America. Uh, we need to somehow not ignore the basics The basics being that uh, Donald J. Trump uh, won the Euro-American vote, including Euro-American women voters, uh, despite uh, his misdeeds uh, too numerous to mention. And that particular constituency, which is less subject to being harassed, of course, oftentimes are able to turn out to the polls in higher numbers. And so I don't think we should have any illusions about that, and I think that we should try to develop an analysis that takes that into account. Uh, which, quite frankly, I have not seen to this point.
0: That's indeed true, especially since you know Nancy Pelosi was on some talk show uh, either this morning or yesterday, talking about how you know she doesn't want to defeat the Republican Party; she wants the Republican Party the Republicans who used to believe in a woman's right to choose and who used to believe in, in people's rights to take their party back. She wants a strong Republican Party. And and Dr. Horn, I feel like when we have Democrats in in the political landscape, like Nancy Pelosi, who are quite honestly just coming right out and saying, you know, the Democrats are, are you know, bad but you know I I think we could we could do with a strong Republican party um, a- as if there are any redeeming qualities to the Republican Party that existed before these folks uh, the Donald Trump Republicans came along. I mean what what is your assessment on Pelosi making that statement? And what did what do you think that reflects about the Democrats who continue to vote for this woman, particularly the Squad, to lead them uh, to lead their party in Congress?
6: Well, I think once again you have to look at the political landscape. To reiterate, you we are living in a settler colonial society based upon class collaboration at its inception between and amongst. European, poor, working class, middle class, and the 1%. That particular alliance of class collaboration has held more or less steadily over the centuries. What has helped to shape that alliance and has helped to liberate some of us from the bondage of Jim Crow, for example, have been external events, such as the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, which put a dagger through the heart of slavery, not only in the Caribbean, but in North America. And then in the aforementioned uh, 1950s, where you had the retreat of the more agonizing aspects of Jim Crow, you saw the rise of a socialist camp that was aiding national liberation movements, not least in Africa, which then put, in turn, put pressure on U.S. imperialism to engage in what we can see retrospectively, was a tactical retreat away from Jim Crow. But as of today, there are not necessarily political forces organized on the ground to challenge the Democratic Party, which is one of the reasons we spent so much time criticizing them, because many of us, when we look at Congress, we see members of the Democratic Party, we see members of the Republican Party. It's not like France, for example, where you just had an alliance between the communists, the socialists, the Greens, and the party of Mélenchon, who had got double digits uh, in the first round of the French elections. He's a former Trotskyite. There's a possibility that he will be prime minister uh, in France as early as next month if the parliamentary elections go well. Uh, But in the United States, we can only (laughs) fantasize about that sort of thing. And that's what I mean about looking at the landscape uh, as it exists. Uh, we need to get rid of these illusions about some so-called revolution in 1776 that created this grand democratic experiment and recognize that we are living perhaps in the final stages of this settler colonial regime. And then the question becomes, well, then how do we escape the wreckage that inevitably will ensue Uh, from this final stage, wreckage that you can already begin to espy uh, when you do a careful study of the U.S. intervention in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, pouring billions of dollars uh, into a proxy war, uh, which bids fair, if we're not careful, to lead the entire planet onto the brink of nuclear destruction. So that's my particular take on where we stand as we speak.
0: And you asked a question that I've been asking myself and, and I've been asking my comrades and organizing and we've been, you know, tossing about a bit. And that is, how do we escape the wreckage? Um, and some iterations of that question are, you know, What do we do? How do we build on the wreckage? And it's something I think I want to get into with you, Dr. Horn, on the other side of this first break, because I think it's really important that we recognize that the empire is indeed falling. And the question is, what are we going to do with the ashes when it does? But we're going to take a quick break, the first break of the hour, and we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay tuned back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, I am back. Sean Blackman is on leave. I am Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Our comrade, and I continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. Oh, and by the way, the phone lines are open, so you, my friends, can call in at 202 521 1320, 202 521 1320, and get in on this conversation. And Dr. Horn, on the other side of the break, I asked you the question that you had raised what is to be done? to uh, avoid the wreckage of this empire falling? Or what, what do we do to build on the ashes of the empire after it falls? And, I, and I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are on that, because I'm not so sure that we on the left are very clear about the answer to that either.
6: Well, first of all, we're in a very deep hole right now. And it's not as if you can smoke three packs of cigarettes a day For 30 years, and then show up to the doctor and ask for a a magical cure. Life does not work like that uh, if you have lung cancer. However, I will say that from this point forward, we need to understand how we've made progress in the past. And that is to say that because of the adverse political circumstance in the United States that we face involving this class collaboration uh, between and amongst uh, those of European descent. uh, the 1% joining hands with the 99%, too many times that I care to recall, that what we've done is we've listened the battlefield. We tried to internationalize the struggle. Now, we've seen intermittently aspects of seeking to do that. I've noticed that intermittently there has been cooperation with the international authorities who've sought to investigate police terror in the United States of America. But I've also noticed that when the African Union and CARICOM had their virtual summit just a few months ago, uh, Black Americans were nowhere to be found, just like when the African Union meets in Addis Ababa, as it will do shortly, uh, it will be quite unusual for Black Americans to be present. And then, of course, we have uh, members uh, of uh, religious groups. Uh, For example, we have Black Catholics, now, that's an international organization. The Pope has spoken out uh, quite uh, eloquently with regard to this apprehension about what's going on in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, I don't notice particularly any black Catholics <laughs> seeking to forge international bonds in that international organization. Uh, perhaps you can brief us on what uh, the Muslims have done with regard to uh, forging global bonds and what is obviously a transnational a grouping of about a billion people. But too much of our struggle is solely domesticated. Too much of our struggle is just uh, doing what I consider to be a superficial analysis of the forces here in the United States of America, and then either bemoaning their uh, inability to lead us uh, to the promised land, or sitting on our hands as the roof continues to collapse upon our heads. So that's my uh, brief uh, summation of perhaps uh, a w- way forward.
0: You know, it's interesting that that is your brief summation because that is almost exactly what we heard in Cuba uh, from the foreign minister and the president of Cuba who talked about uh, being in solidarity with you know left governments that are targets of U.S. Uh, imperialist repression all over the world and they raised the issue of being in solidarity with Caricom and the demand for reparations from the uh, for the uh, for the Caricom nations and particularly Haiti. And I thought that was really interesting Dr. Horn that the political leaders in Cuba made it very clear that internationalism and the defeat of U.S. imperialism is the imperative, not just to end the blockade against Cuba. And I know people are people are thinking, my God, she keeps talking about Cuba. Well, I think it was momentous that I was there and I heard from leaders in another country make clear U.S. imperialism in a way that we never hear in this country and the danger of US imperialism. We never hear politicians or any kind of leaders in this country talk about US imperialism unless it's us on the left, right? In a way that connects foreign policy, the the experiences of people suffering on the ground in their countries, and the need for international forces to coalesce to defeat US imperialism. And it was interesting, Dr. Horn that when the foreign minister and the president mentioned, you know, they go down the list and they talked about how they're in solidarity with, you know, the leftist governments uh, trying to uh, uh, take hold in, in Bolivia, uh, in Venezuela, in, in Nicaragua, and, you know, all of these other countries. And there were cheers throughout the, 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 uh, the auditorium. But when they mentioned, and we stand in solidarity with Caricom and the Caribbean nations' uh, demand for reparations, and particularly Haiti, it was practically silence. There was a spattering of applause among these leftists who were so excited about solidarity to defeat anti to defeat imperialism against these other global South nations. But when it came to uh, solidarity with Caribbean African nations, eh, not so much. And and I I. I just felt like that was an interesting response and an interesting reflection on one of the weaknesses of the left, where we want to limit our solidarity to particular causes, like supporting making sure that Lula uh, is, is able to uh, be reelected, or, you know, ending the blockade against Cuba, but not attacking imperialism, which connects all of those issues. And would provide the freedom and justice that we don't clearly don't have here. And, and I, I just wonder, having conveyed that kind of snapshot to you, what are your thoughts on how we deal with that aspect of the left where there certainly clearly maybe it's an issue of maybe a lot of people don't know about these issues, but also maybe it's an issue of a little bit of racism going on in the left, Dr. Horn. Well,
6: given the fact that it was an international delegation, then what I would say is that that bespeaks perhaps an educational job that we have to do, that we have not done an adequate job in terms of educating our friends and comrades abroad about the importance and salience of, of the Haitian Revolution, mm-hmm. the importance and salience of reparations. Now, with to To your question concerning the left, I was thinking in the first instance that this was a U.S.-based organization or organizational delegation, in which case uh, I would say that part of the problem in the U.S., and perhaps this has been transmitted abroad, is that for whatever reason, and I see this almost on a daily basis, sometimes an hourly basis, that The enslavement of Africans is not perceived as a fundamental class question. That is to say that these were super-exploited workers working for free who were part of an overall working class, but whose super-exploitation was dragging down wages and working conditions for the non-slave sector of the working class too often, including by many of our people, I'm afraid to say, the question of slavery and its legacy is seen as a, quote, race question, quote, not seen as a class question. You could see them as both. Obviously, you could see there's a gender question, too, uh, insofar as the reproductive freedom of enslaved women was a a key strategic, uh, controlling that uh, freedom was a key key strategic objective of the enslaving class. So if we have not necessarily educated folks here in the United States with regard to this critical question of slavery as a fundamental class question that it infects and affects and has effects on all other class questions, well then, perhaps uh, unsurprisingly, we have have been not able to uh, transmit that fundamental lesson abroad. So therefore, it seems to me that minimally, in terms of what we can do right here in North America is that we can instantaneously execute a 180-degree reversal and begin to educate uh, systematically and with clarity uh, on slavery and its legacy uh, how the uplifting of Haiti and the uplifting of the question of reparations is a fundamental working-class objective, is a fundamental anti-imperialist objective, uh, because we're talking in the first instance about a weakening the wealth of the imperialists in Washington and on Wall Street, not to mention their comrades in the North Atlantic bloc, uh, London, not least. And with, once again, the possibility of a victory uh, in France with these parliamentary elections, and whereby uh, you will have a, a former Trotskyist, as uh, Melenchon, as prime minister, this opens up the possibility uh, for international uh, alliances within the North Atlantic bloc, uh, not to mention the fact that in our hemisphere, Guadeloupe and Martinique, not to mention a few islands off the coast of Canada, uh, continue to be ruled from France, which means that we have potential allies literally in our backyard.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, I'm going to brag a little bit about my organization. The Black Alliance for Peace does this very important, deep educational work. Um, So if you see a Black Alliance for Peace webinar, you need to check it out. We do this work quite a bit. Uh, Shameless plug for me, for my organization right there. But, you know, you did mention the French elections, Dr. Horn. Excuse me. And, of course, the implications for the election, with uh, 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 Macron uh, winning another five-year term means, you know, more neoliberalism for the French people. I, I don't uh, expect that he will uh, do as you say, do a one-eighty and reverse any of his policies that. Were that that people took to the streets in France over. I, I suspect that he'll double down on them now, thinking that he has a mandate to continue to do those things. But I do wonder um, how you think uh, Mélenchon as PM would be able, or if he'd be able to mitigate some of those uh, neoliberal-leaning policies that Macron is sure to continue to try to implement
6: it would mean it would be taking the struggle to another level. It doesn't necessarily guarantee results, but it does guarantee a more favorable conditions through which we can struggle. Uh, Certainly with regard to bread and butter issues uh, in France, uh, for example, the question of retirement age, for example, the question of minimum wage. A government led by Prime Minister Mellon uh, could go a long way towards reversing domestic neoliberalism in France. Now, with regard to the issue that we're most concerned about, speaking of foreign policy, uh, once again, it does at least open the door to a possibility that uh, France will become uh, less hawkish with regard to the crisis in Central and Eastern Europe. I noticed that in his speech on May 9th, uh, marking victory over fascism day in Europe, May 9th, 1945, uh, Mr. Macron uh, said rather clearly and explicitly uh, that it would take, quote, decades, unquote, for Ukraine to be admitted to the European Union. Now, that's called kicking the can down the road. Uh, That's called, in a sense, uh, putting a thumb in the eye of Washington, Uh, which, of course, uh, has a contrary point of view. So a possible victory of the left is important, but I think as those who are involved in the science of society, we know that ultimately we have to look at the global correlation of forces, and the global correlation of forces tells us that there are no guarantees, uh, even if by July 1, we're talking about a prime minister, Melenchon, and we're talking about a parliament in France that's dominated by socialists, communists, greens, and other assorted leftists.
0: I I, I know you said assorted leftists, but I know some people would think <laughs> assorted leftists. And you know, I I'll take either description honestly. If we have a, a if if there is a parliament filled with such. Uh, folks in France. I'd love to see that kind of thing here. But I think, Dr. Horn, this actually does tell kind of nicely into the uh, elections in Northern Ireland, which uh, came out with Sinn Féin w- winning the most seats in the uh, uh, Irish, I think, uh, parliament, 27 out of 90. Uh, after Thursday's votes. Uh, votes, And of course, Sinn Féin has always wanted uh, Northern Ireland to leave the UK and become uh, one country with the Republic of Ireland to become independent of their colonial masters, colonizers, the UK. So are, are they one step closer to that? And how is uh, the UK government responding to uh, this new political power of Sinn Féin?
6: It's a crisis. It's a crisis, and as the saying goes, it represents both danger and opportunity. The opportunity is that it can accelerate the ongoing process of the once mighty Great Britain, the once mighty United Kingdom, of falling apart. Uh, as you suggested, uh, Sean Feng which historically it had links to the Irish Republican Army, uh, got more seats than any other party in the recent election, admittedly not a majority. However, the so-called unionist party, the pro-UK party uh, came in second, and then you have an agnostic party that came in third. By agnostic, meaning that they're willing to go either way. (laughs) They're they're willing to stick with London or split from, from London. And speaking of which, what splitting from London would mean, it would be like the defection of, say, uh, Illinois uh, from the United States of America. It would be a significant blow. Put that on top of the fact that Scottish nationalism has yet to dissipate. Recall the vote in Scotland uh, only recently, whereby the nationalists are barely lost in terms of seceding from the United Kingdom, a la what Sean Fein is apparently seeking to do, And with a possible loss of Northern Ireland and a possible loss of Scotland, what this points to is that Great Britain might be falling apart, which on the one hand uh, is a step forward for social progress, insofar as London under Boris Johnson has styled itself as being the sidekick of U.S. imperialism, in some ways more hawkish than U.S. imperialism on the Ukraine crisis. But on the other hand, we know that the imperialists and the reactionaries, they do not necessarily accept setbacks of happily or blissfully, that oftentimes that makes them more dangerous. Oftentimes they try to foment a crises abroad in order to deflect attention from their domestic misdeeds and also in an attempt to get remaining nationals in Britain to rally around the flag so we have to be on guard but at the same time Allah what we were just saying about these parliamentary elections in France in a few weeks I think that this provides a certain kind of opportunity that if we're scientific about it, if we're careful about it, Uh, we can plot further steps forward.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely a a development to continue to watch. But We're going to move to another break, our second break of the hour, and we will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So, please stay with us.
1: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I'm Jackie Lukman, and I continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. And we were talking about uh, Cuba and uh, CARICOM a little bit ago, Dr. Horn, and it seems like this uh, dust-up over the Biden administration insisting on excluding Cuba from the uh, Summit of the Americas is turning into a little more than a dust-up now that uh, the Caribbean community, CARICOM, has threatened to boycott the event. This is after uh, other global South countries, other countries in the Americas have uh, insisted that the Biden administration uh, invite Cuba. I don't see this <laughs> turning out to be a, a anything but a complete... Uh, a failure uh, for the Biden administration, yet another one. Uh, But I'm wondering how you're assessing how this issue over Biden refusing to invite Cuba to the summit of the Americas, how do you think this is going to play out in regard to Biden's uh, legacy, I suppose, but certainly in pushing other countries farther away, maybe faster from alliance with the United States into a a multi a more multipolar uh, type of environment.
6: Well, I think that the summit of the Americas could blow up in the face of Washington. You know, I'm sure that in the last 24 to 48 hours, the president of Mexico, uh, speaking of uh, AMLO, uh, Lopez Obrador, uh, played paid a very important visit uh, to. Cuba. He, of course, has been hotly opposed to any sort of summit of the Americas that not only excludes Cuba, but excludes Venezuela and Nicaragua as well. Uh, With Caricom echoing um, AMLO, it seems that once again, Washington, in seeking to isolate Havana, uh, might find itself isolated in turn. It also points up another dilemma, for U.S. imperialism in terms of its own internal contradictions, because noted note that I mentioned a moment or two ago this continuing attempt to boycott Venezuela. Recall that just a few weeks ago, in the midst of the fallout from the crisis in Central and Eastern Europe, Uh, which has led the European countries uh, joined by the United States to seek to boycott Russian oil, you saw a high-level delegation visit Caracas uh, seeking to make overtures uh, to the Venezuelans. After all, the United States is boycotting some of the major uh, petroleum producers on planet Earth, not only Russia and Venezuela, but also Iran. And so something is going to have to get with regard to the need of these capitalist economies. And so the problem for visiting Caracas was that it did not pass muster with the powerful right-wing Cuban-American community, not only in South Florida, represented by Marco Rubio, the man of the U.S. Senate from South Florida, from Florida, but also it didn't pass muster with Senator Robert Menendez, the Democrat. Uh, who also happens to be of uh, Cuban uh, descent. And so since that time, as far as I know, Washington has pulled back from those overtures uh, to uh, Venezuela. But it also uh, puts the spotlight on Venezuela's neighbor, uh, speaking of Guyana, uh, the sole predominantly English-speaking nation in South America, which not only has a long-term border dispute, with Venezuela, which Washington would like to exploit, but also offshore. Uh, ExxonMobil has made major oil discoveries, uh, which then enhances the profile of Guyana. Recall that U.S. imperialism has been hostile to Guyana uh, for decades, uh, even before the Cuban Revolution. In 1959 and 1953, uh, you had the uh, coming to power Chetty Jagan, a man of the left, the late Chetty Jagan, and that led to a major destabilization campaign, uh, which really uh, is, still has negative consequences to this very day in Guyana, insofar as Washington's tried to scope discord between and amongst the population of African descent, the population of South Asian descent. So, this summit of the Americas, uh, to sum up, uh, could wind up. Uh, helping to illustrate uh, once again that uh, U.S. imperialism's foreign policy is meeting yet another roadblock.
0: I certainly hope so, and I think that is definitely how this is playing out. Even as Joe Biden is continuing to try to boost his, uh, you know, eternally sagging poll numbers by uh, trying to popularize this uh, proxy war, his proxy war in Ukraine, by now signing the Lend-Lease Act into law um, that would expedite the process of sending military aid to Ukraine. Now, Dr. Horn, for people who are not familiar with uh, Lend-Lease uh, agreements and the Lend-Lease Act, what is it And how does it make it easier for the U.S. government to send military aid to Ukraine when for a month, well, two months now, the United States government has been practically throwing money at Ukraine, literally making it rain in Ukraine with our health care, student loan debt, Affordable housing money, COVID relief money, how, how does what could, could there be a process that's easier? What, what does this mean? Well, fundamentally,
6: what it means is that uh, military materiel can be shipped and the United States will basically accept an IOU. Uh, it eases the process, and lubricates the process. And you are correct to raise searching questions about this entire process. Because Ukraine is one of the most corrupt nations in Europe, perhaps the world, and you should not be surprised if press reports indicate sooner rather than later that this weaponry is not necessarily uh, going to frontline soldiers, but actually it might might even be be sold across the border into Russia (laughs) to be used against Ukrainian soldiers, or alternatively Uh, creating fertile grounds for what we saw in Afghanistan after the United States lured Moscow into that uh, quagmire, which led, of course, to the rise of religious zealotry and, we are told, the attack on New York and Washington of September 11, 2001. And certainly, you are more than perceptive to raise the domestic needs of the United States of America. Uh, There have been startling stories of late about the unhoused population, not least on the West Coast, not least the uh, Black men who are dying on the streets of Los Angeles, you would think that that would necessitate a state of emergency. But once again, to come back to where we started, it's rather striking, to put it mildly, that these votes for military aid to Ukraine are passing by gigantic margins. And uh, I see this as a reflection of many factors. One, I have to keep reiter- reiterating the historical context, because if we don't understand settler colonialism and how this so-called republic was begun in the late 18th century, uh, we won't understand hardly anything about this country. But it also bespeaks, I'm afraid to say, a certain uh, rifts amongst uh, left-wing forces, some of whom have deserted the uh, barricades of peace and instead have gone over to the other side. And what's interesting with regard to these forces is that uh, usually the left wing is putting pressure on the government to do A, B, and C. But instead, what the left wing pro-war forces were doing, they're putting pressure on dovish left wing forces to join the pro-war side. And I I can't see how you can rationalize that. I mean, shouldn't I I get more insight from the corporate media with regard to this crisis in Ukraine with all of its um, misunderstandings and miscomprehensions than I get from certain left wing media? Because at least the corporate media, since they have to appeal to the investment class, they have to alert the investor class to the fact. That India is not on board, Brazil is not on board, South Africa is not on board, China obviously is not on board, and the left-wing forces, they they can't afford to go there because they wouldn't be able to explain it. (laughs) So therefore, in typical U.S. fashion, they act like it doesn't exist. They ignore it, which then means that if you ignore relevant and salient factors, inevitably you're going to come up with a bungled analysis. And that's part of the problem.
0: Yeah, the vote uh, for the uh, lend-lease bill in the House last month was 417 to 10. 417 to 10. And it just seems to me that I, I remember leftists, and, and rightly so, correctly saying that uh, you know Democrats should have pushed, pushed for a House floor vote for Medicare for All to see where these politicians stood. I'm not hearing these leftists look at this uh, uh, roll call of uh, the vote for this uh, land lease bill or any other uh, piece of legislation that has provided, that has given all of our money to uh, Ukraine we're, we're not seeing or hearing them raise these issues about these are the politicians. There are no tweets about these are the politicians who voted to send your health care, your education, your affordable housing money to Ukraine. And and I excuse me, I believe, Dr. Horn, that the left doing, as you say, abdicating the barricades of anti imperialism, um, and joining the war effort is a result of the six-year Russiagate campaign. But I only think that's part of it. But I can't really put my finger on what the rest of it is where we have so much of the left all in for defeating Putin and not Recognizing that this is the same imperialism that you were fighting against when it came to the Iraq War, when it came to Syria, when it came to uh, uh, Mali and Somalia and Libya. Suddenly it seems like the left believes that this uh, uh, war in Ukraine is a different thing than all of the other unjust imperialist military actions, covert actions, and proxy wars that the US and the EU and NATO have been behind all around the world and I can't put my finger on really why that is, Dr. Horn. And I'm I'm hoping you can help us figure that out.
6: Well, this is what I would say. I would say in terms of the pro-war left, put it putting it simply, there are two wings. One, historically in the left, there has been a very strong and pungent anti Moscow trend that in fact has been the rationale or many social democrats, many Trotskyites, uh, et cetera, being anti-Moscow throughout the Cold War, and so their being anti-Moscow today is just a continuation of their historic pattern. And then the second is the diametric opposite: the other wing of the pro-war left were folks who were a pro-Soviet, pro-Moscow during the Cold War. They're bitterly disappointed, I would say, understandably by the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, and they're hostile to the successor regimes that have emerged since 1991. Some of them feel a need to do penance, supposedly, for their being pro-Moscow during the Cold War, and so now they're going to do penance by being anti-Moscow. Because recall that during the Cold War, that if you were... uh, in favor of national liberation in Africa, that meant you were a duke of Moscow, for example. And people lost their jobs. People were persecuted. People were harassed. And that has left a very deep impression. We should not forget. And so I think that because of those two contrasting trends, you have a pro-war left with stunning velocity and with a certain kind of short sight in sightedness insofar as uh, not necessarily uh, looking skeptically at pouring billions of dollars and military materiel uh, into Central and Eastern Europe and what the consequences would be. And then second of all, uh, many of us, uh, on the blank left in particular, because of the disadvantageous correlation of forces that has been my theme for the past 50 or so minutes, we've had to rely upon the international community for solidarity. And those in that category, and I include myself, we're very hesitant to be crosswise with Havana, with the Southern Africans, uh, with the global South, and we get nervous if it seems as if we're in the same corner with U.S. imperialism on an important international matter. So there are all sorts of risks, it seems to me, within the U.S. left, both ideological, political, and as they say in the United States, quote, racial, unquote, which help to shed light on the intriguing question that you raise.
0: And see, this, I think, is the importance of participating in events that I participated in the past month, uh, going to Venezuela to the uh, international uh, summit against fascism, going to Cuba, participating in May Day, uh, and and seeing and hearing from leaders of these countries, uh, activists in these countries, leftists in these countries who are who are and have been the targets of U.S. imperialism and are much better at defining it than I think most people in the united states are because they have been the targets of us imperialism for years and decades and it's also been incredibly uh beneficial and i would say even uh uh priceless to meet comrades from around the world south african leftists uh nicaraguan leftists and venezuelan leftists and you know bolivian leftists communists and and other folks who are fighting to defeat this imperialist beast from the outside, because I think it does two things. It, of course, grounds you in the understanding that the rest of the world sees the slip of the United States and has seen it for quite some time. Most people in the rest of the world are under no illusions about what the United States government is and does around the world, and they're clear on U.S. imperialism being the primary contradiction for all oppressed people around the world. But it also provides us, we leftists in the U.S., we anti-imperialists, with the very valuable lesson that I think we really need to have, that we are not alone in this fight. I think it's a reciprocal relationship that we enter into, at least for me, when we engage in these types of Uh, uh, cultural exchanges with other people around the world to let each other know that we are not alone in this fight. We are fighting the imperialist beast from the inside, and we have to make connections with folks around the world who are also carrying on that fight on the outside to let them know that they are not alone, because this system will not be stopped by the efforts of one small group of people here, there, and spattered about around the globe, it will only be defeated with international solidarity and coordinated efforts to defeat imperialism for the improvement and the betterment of all humanity. And I appreciate having the opportunity to have gone to Venezuela, gone to Cuba, and have seen that a better world really is possible with my own eyes. But I want to thank Dr. Gerald Horn, the People's Historian, so much for joining me today on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. We're out of time. We're going to leave it here. I'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. And until then, folks, be good to each other, be good to yourselves, and peace. By Any Means Necessary.